Well, thank you to DJ and his team for leading us as we, we sing of these glorious truths, as we cast off our guilty fears, and as we ask the Lord to, to speak to us. Imagine that, the idea that God could speak to us. Well, we want to actually hear from the Lord, even as we hear from His very Word. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 15. If you have your Blue Pew Bibles, it's page 901, I believe. 901 in the Blue Pew Bible. And even if you're new to the Bible, this is a wonderful opportunity to get exposure firsthand to what we understand is the very words of God. John chapter 15, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5, and I'm going to ask us to stand again as we hear with reverence God's Word. John chapter 15, 1 to 5, this is the very Word of God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Holy Father, we ask that as we consider your word, you would help us to learn what it means to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing in fact that it is indeed you who will and work in us according to your good pleasure. Father, we pray that Christ would be highlighted before our eyes this morning, that your Spirit would so turn the lights on for us that we would see Christ in a new and vivid way. We pray that you would orient our hearts once again to your purposes and your glory and all that you are working in us according to your promises. Lord, we do pray for our church, and we think of even these new members that have brought in. We, we pray for Stephanie and Jody and Jared and Kevin and Vijay and Smitha. Or we pray for all those who are in our church, who are seeking to walk in your ways, to follow you, to make disciples. For those that teach the children, handing on the faith to our, to our kids. For those who are seeking to teach even the young people, the, the youth group, Jared Harfield and all of his ministry there. For those that are wanting to minister to college students and those that are 
even in their early 20s and 30s. Lord, we pray for these young people that they would be able to be equipped to face the challenges of this world. Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts that are burdened for the advance of the gospel. Lord, we see it as the only hope for the world. As we look out on the world, we are reminded of the great tragedy that is the war in Ukraine. We pray, Lord, for the many people that have been traumatized through that battle, the people who have been displaced, the people who have been harassed and chased, the the many who are mourning the war dead. Lord, we do pray that you would raise up counselors, pastoral counselors, to care for those who are traumatized by this war. Lord, something that is only on the news for us is something that is people's lived experience elsewhere. We pray that in the midst of it, many people would repent of their sins and flee to Jesus Christ as the only Savior, even from this fallen world. We pray for those in Russia, too. We pray for the Baptist churches that have faced so much persecution from the Putin government. We pray that they would be able to grow stronger in the midst of all of this, even as they seek a kingdom that is not of this world, even the kingdom of their own king, Jesus Christ. Pray for Pastor Evgeny Bakmuski in Moscow, at Moscow Bible Church, even as he seeks to herald the gospel in the midst of much confusion in his land. Lord, we do thank you for the way that you have been working even in us as citizens in our province, uh, in and through these, our church and other churches. We pray that our church would continue to speak truth to power, that we would herald a gospel witness even to our governments. We do pray for Jason Kenney. We pray as premier. We pray even for the prospect of future governments in this province. We pray that they would live and act and operate in accordance with your word. We pray that they would give the church free reign to be the church. We pray for Prime Minister Trudeau. We ask, Lord, that he would turn from his sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give him wisdom that he would honor you first and foremost in his whole life. Pray for Mayor Gondek. We pray that she would be able to have a, a new and clear understanding of the claims of Jesus Christ upon her. Lord, we, we know that you, you have said, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray, even in this city, that, that our mayor would recognize that fact. Lord, we pray for the free advance of the gospel and that we would, not, we would not be involved in petty squabbles among Christians when we should be heralding the truth to a lost and dying world. Give us wisdom in these things. And Lord, I pray for all those who are hurting, those who are facing long-term illness. And especially, Lord, I think this morning of those who are anxious, those who are angry, And those who are afraid, Lord, I pray that in all of their besetting sins, I pray that you would help them to have gospel comfort. Lord, we pray that your word would, in fact, be you speaking to us with these words of comfort. Lord, we need it. 
Come and speak to us now, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when preaching on John 15 again, if you've been around a long time, you know I've preached on John 15 often, but it seemed appropriate to come back to this passage, and I was just reminded even this morning, he's talking to DJ, and he, he told me how we had gone through John 15 in his marriage counseling with DJ and Anna. And, and so maybe you didn't expect to come to a, a marriage counseling sermon, but you can take it as such, because I think it would be appropriate to apply it as such to all of you who are married out there. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just those who are married and thinking about your marriage, and how to... How to see improvement in your marriage. It goes to everybody. Because each one of you has been faced with this, this constant command that people give to you, even maybe one that you put on yourself. But, but it is this command that says, do better. Do better. Right? Do better. It's, it's, it's kind of been the replacement of try harder. Come on, try a little harder. And then it comes, it moves from merely being do better to be better. Be better. So you make the effort, you do more, you do your best. You accomplish, you achieve, you improve. And yet in all of it, there's failure and faltering. And you feel like you actually aren't gaining any ground. And then you come to the church, and you come to the Bible, and you hear commands and you think, oh, I can't do better. I give up. I quit. You hear the command, be fruitful and multiply. Sure, but you can't find a husband. Or if you're married, there are unseen causes of infertility that you can't solve. I can't do it. You hear the command, you shall not commit adultery. Sure, but you can't keep yourself from having a wandering eye and lust in your heart. And yet these are commands, aren't they? They're commands. They are. And, and so our disobedience to them is condemned. Paul would say, who will deliver us from this body of death? And you might ask that same question. And I'm glad you asked. Because for all of our efforts, all of our efforts to do more and more and more and more, we can never satisfy God. And that's the fact. But it's also true that God provides exactly what He demands. He provides what He demands. He designs and He commands us to, to produce a moral, ethical, virtuous life. He commands us to be better. 
But since we can't produce that, he has to provide what he demands. And so it's completely counterintuitive for us to relinquish our striving, to give up our straining, and to actually rest, to rest upon the Lord. It is a grand irony that we rest deliberately on Jesus Christ and all of the demands, all of the demands of God become fulfilled through Him to us and through us. It is a remarkable thing. It is a great irony that we are to be resting to produce what God demands. And so Jesus taught this idea of resting to produce what God demands. He taught that in this vivid illustration. It is then this famous description of the vine and the branches. Now, although we're going to kind of shift into this big metaphor and, and, and we're going to be talking about roots and branches and fruit. As we go along, you need to be thinking, personally, thinking about all the coaches and all of the parents and all the pastors and all the teachers and all the friends who told you to do better and to be better. And if you think about that, then you will gain an understanding into how Jesus will actually turn your world upside down and bring heaven to earth into your soul. And so as we begin this meditation, then we're, we're actually, as it were, our hearts are praying with Augustine, Lord, command whatever you will and will whatever you command. And that's where we come to in this passage. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 in about four parts. The first is we're going to see the architect, this kind of garden architect, if you were. The second, we're going to look at the root. Thirdly, we're going to look at the flow. And fourthly, by way of application, we're going to look at the focus. Or, if I want to put it doctrinally, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God first, the Messiahship of Christ, thirdly, the power of Christ, and finally, the exclusivity of Christ. But in verse 1, you see, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, Jesus calls himself the true vine, and his Father is the vine dresser, and unless you lived, or have lived, you don't live there now, but unless you've lived in Napa, California, or Kelowna, B.C., or the Niagara Peninsula, or the hills of Savignon, France, or uh, Chianti, Italy, you don't really have any idea what a vine dresser is. You, you don't know what that is. You know, and, and I wouldn't either. Jesus is saying, though, that his father is like a horticulturalist. It's much more than a hobby gardener, like maybe you might be in your backyard. God the Father is like an architect who orders every planting, 
trains every blade, nurtures every vintage of fruit. The detailed attention of God's husbandry and and care for His vineyard, it's impeccable. It's intentional. Now, if you come by my house, you'll notice that my lawn reveals a sort of a haphazard chaos. Uh, It seems to be without design, without deliberation. As for my lawn, uh, weediness is not next to godliness. But Jesus says, this garden architecture he's going to talk about is from the hand of a father. It's the intentional care of a loving father. You know, it's interesting. I, I would venture to think that for many people, they might have more familiarity with a skillful gardener than the idea of a loving father. But Jesus speaks of his father in this way. Now, is Jesus lying? Is Jesus lying? No, he's not lying. Is the father not attentive and careful and purposeful and wise and patient and doing everything in your life with the intention that you would grow and flourish and glorify God? Is he not doing that? If you've let yourself get a wrong view of God, and, and my guess is, my guess is even coming here today, you are tempted with a wrong view of God. If that has happened, just listen to Jesus. Just listen to Him. If you've started to think that God wants to take His people and make their life miserable, then you aren't thinking about the Father who is attentive and this careful vine dresser. What we must all come back to is a strong belief in the complete sovereignty of God as the divine architect and as the fatherly gardener. You know, it's interesting, over the last couple years, uh, you know, the Covidian drama, as we kind of say it, call it around here, of all the doctrines, of all the doctrines that have been attacked by the enemy in the last two years, by our common enemy, the devil, I think the doctrine of the sovereignty of God has been attacked the most. And and it doesn't matter whether we've responded to COVID or to the government, whether with, with emotions of fear or emotions of anger. All of it reveals our failed instincts to actually trust the sovereignty of God. Now, if anyone talks to you about the sovereignty of God and they aren't putting that, that, that sovereignty in terms of the Father as like uh, this garden architect with, with detailed care to grow what is good and beautiful and true, well, then your understanding of God's sovereignty, it's going to be, it's going to be this idea of something cold and clinical and abstract and detached, and it's false. When our church talks about 
God's sovereign grace. We're not talking about abstract determinism, like you're learning over at U of C and Religion 101. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the deliberate, intentional, personal care which God shows so patiently towards stubborn branches, stubborn branches that need constant protecting and constant watering and constant fertilizing and constant pruning. In this church, many of us might say we're Calvinists, not because we believe in a deterministic universe. It's because it's simply a way of saying we believe in a loving, sovereign being who is powerful enough and attentive enough to order every subatomic particle for his garden design. And it is beautiful and glorious. That's why. I don't really care if Calvin said anything. It's just a, it's just a label. So, just to, to consider then this gardener, the Father as the gardener, and just to close this out, this first section, each of us has to realize that our instincts to do better and to be better, those instincts often reveal that we actually don't believe that the garden architect is actually in charge and doing stuff with our lives. We, we just straight up, we just do not trust His sovereign wisdom. Why are you, why are you so fussing around? Because you actually don't like how God's doing things in your life. You say, this isn't, this isn't good timing for this right now. I, I've got a better timetable for what's going on in my life than what is actually happening. And of course, you don't come right out and say it. Nobody would, because then it sounds bad. But you're thinking it, and you're feeling it. We strive. We fail. And so we strive living then these anxious lives. Oh yes, you don't, you don't struggle with anxiety. I forgot. Said no one. We're all anxious. Maybe it's in part because you've got a skewed view of, a, of the sovereignty of God. That's, that's why you're anxious. Now just start thinking, my hope is, and you'll do this, is start thinking about God's horticulture in your life. Start thinking about his arborist care, you know, trimming, ordering, his arborist care for you, like, like this grand arborist. Start thinking about how is he irrigating you? Calvin said the Holy Spirit is the one who irrigates the soul. Think of how he's irrigating you and fertilizing you and pruning you and protecting you And he's doing all of this in order to make you grow. If you start thinking about that, then I think you'll find that your anxiety will melt away like the snow in a spring afternoon. It'll it'll just it'll just it'll be gone. 
Now, I want us then to go from considering then this vine dresser to moving secondly to the subject of the passage, which is the vine himself. Basically, the vine, the, the tree trunk that arises from its own roots. And so secondly, we see Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now the word for vine in Greek is ampelos. And from it we get our English word ample. Ample, which means it's something with the idea of abundance. It's abundant. And in this case, the trunk of the tree is growing up from its own roots. The roots provide the self-sustaining ability for the tree to grow. No one else is like that. Now, when we think about a vine, probably if you think if you're familiar with the Bible, your, your mind will automatically go back and consider the Garden of Eden, which is appropriate. Eden, of course, shows us that agrarian, creative, organic, regenerative, agricultural picture. Now, the fruit of the tree factors in significantly in the garden. So, Adam was told to eat of all the fruit of the trees, but not to eat the fruit from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His wife Eve was tempted by Satan to break God's law, but Adam, he knowingly rejected, rejected God's sovereign word. He, he embraced the word of his wife. He embraced the word of Satan. And Adam embraced his own inner word. That's what, a, that's what sin is, embracing your own inner word as opposed to God's word. We read about these historical events in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. Later on in the Old Testament, the vine is used as a metaphor to describe God's people Israel. Hmm, interesting. They're his old covenant people. So in Psalm 80 in verse 8, it says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. So Israel is the vine. Psalm 80, verse 8. Um, Deuteronomy 32, Israel is contrasted with the vines of Sodom and Gomorrah. So those are false vines with evil, poisonous fruit. Jeremiah chapter 2, God confronts his vine and says, well, why, why have you become a wild vine? This doesn't seem right. Or Isaiah chapter 5, there's a whole long passage that speaks about God's vineyard being destroyed because it was wicked. And so that's the problem. That's, that's the setting for John 15 is actually Israel as the vine that failed and went bad, producing poisonous fruit. But then according to the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John the Apostle, as John records it, Jesus taught that he himself is a vine. But he's not one vine among many. He's not one vine, and then Israel is another vine, and the pagan nations are another vine. No, Jesus confidently calls himself the true vine. 
the true vine. The alethine ampelos, the source of ample supply. And what does it supply? It supplies aletheia, truth. That's what this vine supplies. It supplies truth. He is the true vine. We could say truth flows through his veins. So Jesus was making a claim about what kind of vine he was, what rootage and what supply he gave. He is characterized by truth. But he's also, or I should say, he's so characterized by it that he takes the title, it's sort of an eternal nickname, the true vine. In contrast to Israel and all other substandard, faulty and false vines. So to put it another way, Jesus is making a philosophical statement and a historical statement. Jesus is the true vine in sort of a philosophical, theological way because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6, you remember he said it in response to the skeptic Thomas's question. That's, a, that's one way, but, but historically, because Jesus was setting himself up as the, the he's the fulfillment of Israel's mission, then Jesus himself is the true vine, which Israel was only a pointer. In fact, Jesus is the true Son, a title which Psalm 80 actually applied to Israel. So, Israel was a son, Israel was a vine, Jesus is the true vine, Jesus is the true Son. So what Jesus is doing in John 15 in this passage is then to use a vivid picture to tell us that He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises to Israel. And from this point on, and, and if you're a new Bible reader, you need to know this key. From this point on, we need to understand that the Old Testament is not then a, a parallel story running alongside of the story of Jesus. Rather, it is a story finding its climax in the fulfillment of Jesus himself. To put another way, the, the church doesn't replace Israel, but Jesus himself is the true Israel. And that's what we mean when we look at the Bible in a Christ-centered way. We are saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises they are fulfilled in him. So Jesus has given us then this key to understanding the Bible in this way because the old vine failed. It failed. The true vine doesn't fail. So, when you are tempted then to do better or to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, as we used to say, well, God's giving you then lesson after lesson after lesson to correct you. And it's found where? In the experience of Israel in the Old Testament. You just look at them and you see, yep, trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, trying to do it on their own. They're not going to trust God. They're going to forget God and they're going to do it on their own. Story after story. That's why we need to teach the Old Testament to our children. 
So they see all of these examples of people who are called to obey God and who fail to obey God because they don't have regenerate hearts. Israel couldn't keep the law because they couldn't keep their heart. Their heart ran after sin. And their their hearts weren't transformed so that their law-keeping, it all failed. Later, Peter would say, uh, Peter would say in the book of Acts, he, he warned that trying to keep the law without a new heart, he said, you're, you're putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We haven't been able to do it. Peter just admits, oh, I, 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 we, we couldn't pull it off because we didn't have new hearts. So don't act like you're part of the old vine if, we, if you believe that you're joined to the true vine. And I'll just throw in this, just for a few of you. Don't substitute old vine theonomy for true vine Christology. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Those who know, they know what I'm talking about. And, and just so I move, before I move on from this point, I think we need to see that because Jesus is the true vine, only fruit-bearing branches remain in him. They all get Jesus' attention. Yes, the gardener prunes them, but that's because they bear fruit, and they will bear more fruit, verse 2. Just like the parable of the sower, if you were here last Sunday, if the soil doesn't produce lasting fruit, then it's not a true believing soil. So, so a, a, a so-called branch that doesn't bear fruit, it's not a real branch. It's, it's not a branch. It, it's just another log for the fire. That's all that piece of wood is. Now, you might be sitting there and now you're thinking, okay, well, I'm a little bit anxious about whether I'm in the vine or not. Just know that Jesus said to those who believe in him, verse 3, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So instead of trying to do better, to clean yourself up or to be better, or like some of you are doing, you're trying to self-atone for your sins, instead of that, you can simply receive Jesus' declaration about you. Jesus' word, what he says about you. If Jesus says you are clean, you are clean indeed. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. Stop acting like they're not forgiven. If Jesus says that his righteousness is acceptable to the Father as fully keeping the law and that righteousness is credited to you if you believe in him, stop acting like you have to achieve that righteousness yourself. Take his word. Take, it, take him at his word. If he said these things about you, you are already clean. Stop thinking, oh, i got to clean myself up. That's a different religion. When the gardener grafted your (laughs) wild branch into the vine, he stripped away all the diseased fruit. 
And he made you clean in his sight. And so that then you can produce good fruit. And so you need to cling to Christ. Think of it. This is you personally. You need to cling to Christ and stop acting like you need to take charge of your own life's landscaping. And there's, there's too much of that going on in each of our lives. That's the second point. Thirdly, is the flow of things. We've seen the root. Now, what's the flow? And this gets into one of the most profound things that you'll ever hear in this church, I think, is understanding this. The word abide is repeated throughout the passage. Abide. And it is a direction and a duration. It's a direction and a duration. Both are commanded. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. It's actually, you know, that southern plural, y'all. It's in you all. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Notice, very importantly, notice the direction. It's so critical to get this. The direction is always toward the vine, toward the tree trunk. The branch is oriented towards the tree trunk. It makes sense. If a branch isn't directed toward the tree trunk, then it's just firewood. It's just a log. It's cut off. It's disconnected. As Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And later in verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's what you do with logs. You don't do that with living branches that are bearing fruit. But we're talking now about this abiding. It is a remaining. It is a being connected. But the key point is that abiding has one direction. To be clear, this is the key thing. You do not abide in the fruit. You do not abide in the fruit. That's the key key thing. You don't focus on the fruit. You don't abide in the fruit. You don't maintain a direction toward the fruit. In fact, fruit is the opposite of your abiding. Your fruit, the size of it, the shape of it, the ripeness of it, that's not your focus. It's not your business even. Your focus is on the one direction toward the tree trunk. But then to abide is not just one direction, and you don't merely look to Jesus once. It is to keep looking to Jesus. Think about a log. You'd never say, well, it used to be attached to a tree. I wonder if we'll get some berries from it. No, you would never think that. It's just a log. doesn't matter. It's unconnected. It bears no fruit. So there's this duration of constant remaining 
but it is with this direction that is always one way toward Christ. To abide is to remain. To, to keep on keeping on. Well, how's it going? Well, I'll tell you what, Branch, it, it's, it's going. You know, it's, I just keep looking to Jesus, and I, whatever else happens, that's his business. Springtime harvest, I don't know. Like, I, I just abide. That's my job. One direction, eternal duration. Looking to Jesus now and forever. See, it's critical to be clear about this. Because every good endeavor, every good work, every good ethic, every good moral change, every good dominion taking, every good that you might do must come as fruit that you don't focus on. When you're like, Clint, that just that sounds like that doesn't make sense. Obviously, if I want something to happen, I gotta focus on it. Yeah, but that's that's the irony of the upside down world of how God works. Instead, you receive the spiritual sap flowing from Christ. You receive it. Your orientation is toward Him, toward His character, toward His interpretations, toward His commands, toward His interests, toward His law, toward His grace. And from that sap that flows to you in one direction, to you and through you, your good works are performed and produced by God, in God's way, in God's time. You're not even looking at them. You're looking at Christ. Others will see, oh wow, look at that fruitful tree. Look at that fruitful branch. But you're not looking at the fruit. You're looking at Christ. The fruit is His business. It's the gardener's business. See, this is the spiritual secret to Christian growth. You don't grow by devoting yourself to growth. All other religions teach this. That's how you grow, by focusing on growing. You know, when I went to the Tibetan monastery in China, everybody is devoted to taking, you know, if they did a thousand burpees, I've used this illustration, they do a thousand of these burpees in prayer, then they make one small step, they said. So they're focused on growth. I've got to make my one small step, so I'm going to do a thousand burpees. Devoted to growth, all vanity. When the true Christian falters, it's because you've wanted to increase something on your own terms. And you focused on the growth rather than on the Christ. The spiritual secret to Christian growth is to spiritually abide in Christ one direction for eternal duration. The fruit doesn't enter your view. Now, you know you're commanded to bear fruit. You know you're commanded with all of these different aspects of ethical life. You're commanded in these things. And because they come from the lips of Christ, then you heed them. But you heed them as coming personally from Christ. And your focus is on Christ and trusting Him to produce them in you. 
But as Sinclair Ferguson put it, and I heard this long time ago, I've never forgotten it. The fruit doesn't enter, view, enter your view, but as Ferguson said, Christ fills your horizon. Christ fills your horizon. The perimeter then of your peripheral vision never looks past Jesus. Never looks past what He says. Never looks past what He prioritizes. And as you abide in Him, He grows the fruit in you. He grows it through you. He does it in His time and in His way. You know what's so disorienting though? Because now to get practical, what's so disorienting for us is that there are seasons in a believer's life when we appear to have no fruit. We appear to have no fruit. Sometimes the Father prunes us, and so for that season, apparently it looks like there is no visible fruit. But that's not because we're fruitless. It's because we've been fruitful, but God wants us to be more fruitful. Laughed in my again my bad horticulture work. In my backyard, we got an apple tree, and I remember I cut that tree back viciously, and I kind of got maybe a little bit of critique about how much I cut it back. And the thing is, though, it did then end up bearing a lot more fruit. But it looked awful. It looked awful. And that's how a lot of you are. God's pruning you, and your spiritual life looks awful for a season. But it is not because necessarily you are then abandoned by God. It's actually that God sees the little bit of fruit you got and says, mm, I want more. And so he's going to prune you back so that you will bear more. And that's the disorienting thing when we're so focused on the fruit instead of abiding in the vine. We abide in the vine. There's fruit there. There's not fruit there. It's trimmed back. It's lots. It's not that much. It's not my business. It's Jesus' business. It's the Father's business. Jesus said the intention, of course, verse 2, is that it may bear more fruit. 4, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Nada. So, so it's not then, oh, I, oh, I, I, oh, I don't have much fruit in my life. I've got to give some focus to my growth. I've got to focus on that. Do you know what God's trying to do in you? Focus on the, these different aspects of my ethical life or my personal development. No, 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 no. You need to look to Jesus. You know what the answer is to the madness of our declining culture? It's not then to chase around and try to put band-aids all over on the declining culture. It's to abide in Christ. But that's way too simple and way too supernatural for most folks. They want to see something visual, and so they don't see fruit in the culture. So, oh, we've got to scramble. Let's see if we can tie on some plastic fruit and see if everybody's happy then. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, 
as faith is merely a receiving grace, so prayer is a begging grace. Is that the kind of grace that you're living on? A receiving grace? Or is that kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too self-made for that. I don't, I don't need to receive grace. I don't need to beg for it. I, I think I, I've got a handle on my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to charge for it, or I'm going to get fit, or I'm going to get wealthy, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become more godly, whatever it might be. And you're going to charge ahead, and you're going to do all these things. When actually you're called to look to Christ, to know Christ better, to know the Word from His lips better, to draw near to Him, to be fed on by Him, supplied amply, with truth running through his veins. So as a branch, as a Christian, if you're a Christian believer here, you actually lack the capacity or the ability or the power. The word used here in verse 4 is similar to that word dunamis, that powerful dynamite Greek word. The branch, verse 4, cannot, doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the power to bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. You just can't do it. No power, no ability, no capacity unless you abide in the vine. Goodwin again, the Puritan said, Christian, all that is in God, all that God is, will supply all that you need. Very simply. Well, that brings us then to the fourth section, my application, namely the focus. And, and, and just thinking through that, what we started with. How does now do better sound? Try harder. Be better. Don't get me wrong. There's many commands in God's Word. But the first and most important of these is to repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, putting it, put it in a different way, as Jesus said, he said, follow me. He didn't say, yeah, keep looking back and seeing what's coming after you in the trail behind you. No, he said, follow me. He didn't say, well, follow me and we're going to go on this straight road. It's going to be very clear. And so long as the road is straight, you follow him. No, he said, follow me through the valleys, over the hills, all over the place. doesn't matter where the road goes. You just follow him. The illustration of following behind the bumper of the car in front of you I used a few Sundays ago. You just follow him. The Ten Commandments, the Law of God, all of these certainly place obligations upon us. But our response cannot simply be, do better. We want to be better, we want to change, we want to grow, we want to be transformed, we want to be sanctified, we want to be made holy, we want to be made fit for heaven. We want to be glorified, we want all that stuff. But it is not simply by trying harder. Instead, it is by receiving. Friends, are you receiving? Receiving the sap of the supply from Christ. The flow received from focusing on Christ. 
being near to Christ, never letting the Overton window move your view away from Christ, heeding commands because you have seen them drop from the lips of Christ in His Word, from His His Word to your ear, to your heart, to your hands. And so by way of application, I want us to consider one area where I think all of you and myself, we all want fruit, but we have to abide first. And we all want the fruit of being free from anxiety. I just choose this one. Because you're sitting there, and I can guarantee you want to stop being anxious. I know you want to. Because you're anxious about your health. You're anxious about the government. You're anxious about your finances. You're anxious about your spouse. You're anxious about a lack of a spouse. You're anxious about the state of your children. You're anxious about the state of the culture. How do you stop being anxious? Oh, well, i got to busy myself and try to fix all this stuff around me. How's that going for you? You're all wore out. You're all exhausted. The anxiety and the exhaustion go together. Remember Jesus. Focus on Jesus. It, it sounds cliche, but that's because you're not doing it. Looking to Jesus sounds cliche because I'm not looking to Him. And just ask yourself, okay, this Christ, is He still the living, true vine? Is He still that? Well, yeah. Is the Father still the loving sovereign? Well, yeah, He still is. He hasn't quit. He still loves and cares. Is the size or the stage of my fruitfulness, is it my business or is it God's? Well, I'd really like to make it my business, but actually I know it's actually God's business. It actually isn't my business. If I appear to fail, do I still belong to God? If I appear to succeed, do I belong to God somehow more so than when I failed? <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you succeeding at this spirituality thing somehow makes you, you know, higher up on God's list. It doesn't work that way. And do I have to feel unanxious to be accepted by God? Sometimes we feel anxious and we don't even know why we do. And we're doing our best not to feel anxious, but we still do. But even then, we look to Christ and realize, nah, I feel really weird, but I'm going to abide in the vine anyways. When you receive the grace of Christ, obediently abiding, you will think that you're doing nothing. But what's actually happening is that you have stopped pretending that you are the producer. You've stopped faking it. You're not the producer, and instead, Jesus Christ 
is the one who produces the fruit in you of a type and a vintage that you could never imagine. Have you ever seen an old vine or at least a picture of those old vines in a vineyard? You know, they always look really gnarled and crooked and twisted. They don't look pretty. But the grapes on that old vine, they produce that beautiful vintage. Can you even imagine that God can take the wrecks, the wrecks in your marriage, or the wrecks in your kids, or the wrecks in your personal life, and He could actually grow much fruit in you through the old crooked branch that you are. And and the fact is, when I say that, some of you, you just don't believe that. You just don't believe he's able to. And so you've given up. You've thrown your hands up. See, in the world, you can look out at the world, and we can be amazed at what people can accomplish. Oh, they're so productive. We can be amazed uh, what we can accomplish, oh yeah, well, I'm, look at what I did. Look at how far I've come. We can spend time and effort on how to be better and to do better and to accomplish more. We can be productive, all the productivity, we can do it all. And we can be amazed at our results. But as Lloyd-Jones said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of of our amazement at the grace of God. You'll never be amazed by His grace if you focus on your fruit, on your flow from within yourself, or being amazed that you are actually cut off from the root. You won't be amazed at His grace. But... If you abide in the vine, to abide in the vine is actually to be amazed by His grace and to merely take it, to receive it, to accept it. And so that's the question then I leave with you all. Will you accept Christ's amazing grace? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that there would be many here who even maybe for the first time would stop their resistance and that they would accept your amazing grace. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing in praise to God for his amazing grace. Please rise. Paul says to the Ephesian church, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. But then he goes on to say, by contrast, he says, but God being rich rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So friends, let God do God's business. He's in the grace business. Simply receive His grace and He will do the transforming in your lives. But all you need to do is look to Him. Look to Him today. Go in peace. You're dismissed.